Ryan Fleet, and you are listening to the KCADV podcast series. Today, I have Isela Aris, who is the Chief Operating Officer with KCADV, the Kentucky Coalition Against Domestic Violence. And we're going to be talking about alternatives to incarceration and how the BIP program, which is Batter Intervention Program, can provide alternatives to survivors. So hi, Isela. Hi, Diane. It's nice to see you again. It's nice to see you. It's been a little bit. I'm glad we're clicking back in and giving new information out to advocates and the community at large. So welcome. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. So today we've talked about BIP before, Battery Intervention Program. We've talked about it before, but now we're going to talk about it a little bit in the structure of kind of systems. But just for everybody who's tuning in, can we just do a little bit of an overview about what BIP is? Sure. We know, first of all, we could start with the name. Um, We are really having a little bit of a hard time or more of like an identity crisis because, you know, we really care about being person-centered. And so the Battery Intervention Provider Program, which is BIP, you know, carries with it a little bit of of judgment within the language and the title. So, you know, we are thinking about that, but as to what it is, um, the BIP program is an educational program designed to support the development of new skills for people who are using violence to solve problems in their relationship. Um, you know, we are also playing around with language to be able to center people. So, you know, in the past, we would say the batterer, the perpetrator, you know, offenders, but we want to be able to create an avenue by which people can learn to solve conflict in relationships a little better. A person might attend BIP classes after their partner has left or threatened to leave. Maybe their partner has said, you know, if we don't figure things out or things don't get better in our relationship, I'm going to leave. A partner might have obtained a protective order, or in some cases, they might have been required to attend BIP classes by the court or by the Cabinet for Health and Family Services as a part of um, like a prevention plan or to prevent the removal of children from their home. Unfortunately, sometimes, you know, a person does seek out BIP, you know, in order to rescue a relationship, but that doesn't always mean that they're able to stay with the whole program. The program's about, um, it's 30 weeks in length, and anything less than 30 weeks is not true BIP. The state regulations require that a BIP program be at minimum 30 weeks, an hour and a half every single week. Individual BIP, which most of the time, so let me go back for a second. So BIP classes involve um, a group setting. And that's the ideal intervention for 30 weeks. Um, Sometimes in very, very limited instances, like if someone has a mental health condition, that means that they might be a little bit um, disruptive to the group or they simply can't learn well from the group. Often this also is like a mental health condition or substance use or condition or substance use uh, challenge, or it could be that someone's lethality risk is really high and they're not a good fit for the group. So individual BIP um, services are available and those are at a minimum of 32 weeks for at least an hour. And so those classes are available Available, you know, throughout the state, um, we have approximately 200 providers that are active. I think we have 300 that are certified. So we have, you know, a huge array of, serv- of provi- uh, providers around the state that can offer these classes. Do you find so? So one of the things that I think can always be a bit of a miscommunication. I'm going to leap ahead just for a yeah. little bit because I know we really want to get into the systems piece, but sure. I just had a few questions from a practicality. So I think we often think of BIP KCADV member programs as survivor centered, right? We're doing this survivor centered, but I think a lot of folks might still have the idea that this is therapeutic for the perpetrator or the offender. Mm-hmm. Not that it doesn't have hopefully positive effects in that way. And so I'm wondering is there is there some discussion and conversation? around really what is the goal? Because I do think sometimes we slip and slide. If I'm talking to advocates of domestic violence and survivor-centered folks, then I'm saying that this is sort of a way to, to, to ensure, protect, trying to make 
you know, home's future safe, right? Like, Absolutely. so whether, whether the offender goes through it or whether the victim has time to sort of consider other options. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of folks also really look at it as ways for the offender to maybe learn things and actually show up better, right? And so, so what do you think it really is? Like, is it a both and? I would say that it is. I think primarily Kentucky has designed its BIP program to be an educational opportunity for someone who's struggling with resolving conflict in their relationship to be able to learn new skills, how to manage conflict, how to have disagreements, how to listen better, how to be engaged a little differently, how to unlearn some of the things that they've learned that are causing harm. For example, if one of the things that you've learned in your home is that, you know, you know, if you had traditional like gender roles, if we're talking about a heterosexual relationship that, you know, mom always is the only ever, you know, provider of care for kiddos and dad only ever works. And those are the two delineations. But, you know, what if you have a partner who would prefer a different delineation of those responsibilities? And how do we get to those places where people can have what they need and the support from their partner in the way that they need it to be able to manage that? And I mean, that's where, that's what conflict is. It's like, it's a place where we disagree and we need to come up with an, a, with a different arrangement or response. And so, you know, a lot of us grow up learning things from a variety of different sources, our families, you know, just people around us about how we live or don't live our lives. And so some, for some people, violence is a part of what how they've learned to resolve some of those challenges in their lives. And so when that happens, you know, they, there's a lot of unlearning that has to happen. And so the BIP program is designed to help develop, or provide some new education about how to manage those, those um, discrepancies, I guess, within beliefs as well as actions. You know, to some degree, it is there. It can be therapeutic. VIP services are provided by mental health professionals for the large, um, ex- for most part. However, it's not therapeutic in the typical sense that, for example, if someone goes to a VIP program, they don't have the same expectation of confidentiality that a therapy client might have with their therapist. Not that we don't care about confidentiality for VIP par- uh, participants, but it's because the confidentiality has, has to look a little different. A lot of domestic violence happens within the shroud of secrecy. And so confidentiality cannot be a stand-in for that secrecy. So we need to look at it a little differently. And so in the way that it's therapeutic and the way that confidentiality plays a role, it's that as long as there's accountability, we definitely want to maintain people's privacy um, and respect their, you know, their, their private lives as well, but while also maintaining that accountability within that confidentiality realm. Do you think that that messaging is pretty clear through the judicial system? Like I, I would imagine that there's still a lot of onboarding of family court judges, maybe even district court judges, misdemeanor level judges that really might be looking at how BIP could be used and, and utilized and connected with folks differently? Like, do they? Do you think they have a really good sense of its purpose? Unfortunately, I don't. And that's one of the things that intrigues me about this program because it's such an incredible opportunity and has so much potential. You know, the BIP program has been around since 1998. And... Um, it's not ever been something that was, you know, like really visible or highly touted or something that we were really excited about. And I'm not saying that somebody wasn't excited, just like as a whole, we weren't because it brings with it a little bit of risk. And um, I think that we still have this like, well, we'll see if it works and then we will bring it to the forefront. And so a lot of judges, a lot of, you know, even cabinet staff just don't know a lot about it, or they might have some misconceptions about what it is or it isn't or what it can do or can't do, or even how how to engage with it. One thing I see is that sometimes people will say, you know, the language is pretty important for this, but a judge will say, I want this person to have anger management classes. And so that's because they don't understand the BIP program completely. Because if they did, what would happen is they would know that 
anger management is a part of BIP, but not a substitution for BIP. And so what's what's happened is that um, this entire other element of service provision has risen around these requests from judges who have requested anger management. And many of our providers try to ris- rise to the request that anger management services be providers. And that's when we run into some problems. It seems like so many things, right? Like things get built on a wrong foundation, right? Because I, I hear anger management quite often. I don't go to courts as much as I used to, but I think beyond just not understanding what BIP is, they're not understanding what domestic violence is, right? So if we're looking at anger as sort of the causal issue, and if we can deal with that, that's a whole different ballgame. But if we're looking at power and control and coerciveness, and then that's a different, you know, then that's a whole different approach as well. So I would imagine getting, getting judges, and I'm so glad you brought up DCBS, which helps a little bit too with the, the conversation we're wanting to go into with how do systems interact with this and who's kind of leading the, the cart, right? Absolutely. And so we're wanting those folks to kind of understand what this product, maybe if that's the right word, can do versus trying to make it something that it's not. One of the other criticisms I think that often comes about is that sometimes when folks go through the BIT program, the treatment program, that it makes survivors or it makes batters better batters. They've learned those tricks. Are we finding any evidence of that? Or is that one of those things that we just can't keep, can't kind of let go because we've just been saying it over and over and it has become truth? Or are you finding some evidence that maybe that is a little bit true? I think it goes back to what you were saying just a second ago about we don't really understand the program in and of itself. And so there's some like, there is some risks and you know, I, I do hear that some people think that VIP programs just make offenders better batterers. You know, there is some truth to that. And I think we do have to acknowledge that. And I think the most important piece of what you just said a minute ago was that when people don't understand domestic violence, they solve the wrong problem. And if I could boil down, you know, and I say that that was really smart. Thank you. <laughs> you did <laughs> Thank say you that. Thank you for saying it that way. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I think it's very true. Yeah. At the end of the day, like if I could boil down the BIP program or just a lot of the work that we do, it really comes down to how well do you understand domestic violence? Do you understand it as, you know, a systemic problem that is, you know, happening the world over? Are you understanding it as a power and control issue? Are you understanding it as an oppression issue? If you are, then you're less likely to contribute to the building of of better batterers, shall we say. And over the last five years or so that we've been um, working on the BIP program, trying to like build it up. It is something that I see over and over. Most of the time when I am engaged with a BIP provider who has um, sort of run astray of the regulations, it's because they didn't understand domestic violence. It's because they saw domestic violence as a 50-50 endeavor because they didn't understand the the different differences in power and the use of power and control over a partner. And what ends up happening is they make decisions that give the message to people who are already struggling with how to solve problems or using violence. I mean, they would never say that it's okay, but we're giving the message that there's no consequence for an action that hurts someone else. And when that happens, then that leads to some pretty terrible consequences. You know, a lot of times we just have to remember that it's also not a quick solution, which also makes people nervous. You know, people come to us in their, you know, 20s or, you know, any time they're over 18 to like, you know, 60s, 70s, they've had a lifetime of learning how to live their lives, manage their lives, manage the difficulties in their lives using the same set of strategies for this long. We have them for 28, 32 weeks. 
32 hours. And so the amount of undoing we can do in that time, I'm not saying we shouldn't attempt it, but it, you know, we also should temper our expectations about what kind of change is possible. That's one of the things too, is the time frame, right? Like I think we do see that there's better evidence of success or behavior change the longer the BIP Absolutely. program is. I think this kind of goes a little bit into systems piece too, that we're allowing systems to determine how long our BIP program is when really we know, again, cart leading horse, right? Yeah. That, that we know that a longer duration, because there's sort of a magical number that we're, I know nothing's magical, but is there sort of a number that <laughs> we would love to achieve. Like KCADB would go, I wish it was 50 weeks or I wish it was two years. Or because you just said, you know, when you're 67 years old, you've had a lifetime of this pattern of behavior. Maybe to a degree, it's a little bit of an ongoing kind of touchstone. I'm not saying you're going every week for the rest yeah. of your life, but sometimes you just might need a little dip in and a reminder because it's really easy to fall back to old patterns if you genuinely want to change. Absolutely. And, you know, I am a huge fan of magical thinking. Anytime I get a chance to do it, I'm all about it. I can definitely start there and say that if I had a magical number in mind, I would love to start at 52 weeks. You know, and I, I recognize that the magical part is like the reality for people's lives to be able to afford the time and the funds to be able to to pay for that kind of treatment, right? But the reality is that I think we need to look at this you know, again, in the long term, how long do people need our support and our help? And this is where it gets into like the systems work because there we have basically two options for uh, responding to domestic violence. We can ignore it. Hey, just, you know, walk it off, you know, go walk around the block, no arrests are made. Or we can arrest people and just throw them in jail and forget about them or cause additional harms or, you know, create, you know, a record, you know, a criminal record for someone. That's also not helpful. And so we need to think about it as like, what does this person really need from us as a service provision community to be able to live their best life with their families, with their children, with their partners? And that's, you know, 52 weeks is really just to start. You know, one of the other frameworks that I sometimes like to think about with this is think about AA. You know, a lot of people who struggle with alcoholism benefit from, you know, the 12-step program. And many, many, many AA programs or who offer AA meetings you know, it's a continual effort. There's sometimes points of your life that you need them a little, need meetings a little more than you need than other times. You know, you might need to stop at a meeting if something particularly difficult is going on. But for a while, maybe things are okay and you don't need to. I kind of think about BIP in those terms as well. And as if it, if it could be that accepted and that, I don't know, like that welcome, I think that would be, that would create a huge shift in our, in our world. I think that could be really fascinating. And on the magical thinking too is, you know, I think not only is it offenders and courts that often want this to be just sort of a quick fix, but it's often our survivors, right? Absolutely. Like they want their family back intact the way they hoped it was going to be, or maybe at one point that it was. Um, and so I don't know how many times I've worked with folks that'll go, okay, I'm going to amend this protective order back to a no violent contact and move this person back in the room because they've started BIP, right? Yeah. And it's like, Ooh, let's give this person some time to actually build up some success and some skill before we automatically, you know, introduce this individual back into the home or having, you know, access. And then if you want to kind of evaluate, the one thing that I think when you're talking about confidentiality too is survivors can tap in and kind of get information. Is the person going to the classes? You know, are, are you seeing any signs that are concerning? Because so many times victims need to kind of know what that individual is sort of showing up as, because I'm sure the Offenders coming back and going, it's great. It's, you know, I'm the star <laughs> student, right? Totally. And so it's really nice to hear the person going, you know, they never participate, they never come in. Or, yeah, they are sort of the star student. I think this person's really attempting to do some self reflection. 
Absolutely. You know, I think that's what appeals to me and appeals to KCADV about this program is that we believe that people are in that more in that place of, I really do want to change. I really do want to make this better. I don't like the life that this is creating for me. And so we anything we can do to support that, we're all about it. You know, and yeah, survivors can totally be involved in their partner's VIP program. I think if I think it's really important for advocates to know that they can request that. This is a little bit of a meet in the middle part of our work right now. You know, advocates are a little bit hesitant about trusting and engaging with BIP providers. BIP providers have always existed in the sort of the periphery of the domestic violence world of service provision. And so they really haven't engaged with us in the way that I would have liked. But the two of us should work together. We are the you know, we're two sides of a coin, honestly. And the program is designed with survivors in mind. They're, we consider them one of the clients of the program. The children are part of the, you know, are a client of the program. The, the regulations also expect that survivors are going to be consulted to obtain the fullest picture possible about what's happening in the offender's life or so that during their BIP experience, some of those concerns can be addressed openly. You know, survivors are also typically seen as, you know, a really trusted source of information because often, I mean, we've got two people who don't see their lives the same way. And so we really need as much information as possible to be able to determine where those patterns are be, uh, becoming controlling or abusive. And so who better to tell us than a survivor who's been living with this person for 10, 15, 3, 12 months, years, you know, really is their really good source of information. So as we've been talking, it's become quite apparent that a lot of it is is talking about systems and how people get referred to BIP programs, usually through criminal justice process, right? So, and as you just said a second ago, we can either ignore domestic violence or we can arrest and incarcerate and maybe have some diversions or alternatives or probation, which BIP could be Absolutely. part of. And so, so in our magical thinking though... How would you love to sort of see, you know, as we're helping survivors and we're moving forward, how would you somewhat think systems change could really look and utilize, you know, BIP? Like, where would you love to see this go? Oh my gosh, um, there's so many places I would love to see BIP go. You know, you said it a minute ago, one of the first places I would like to see us go is to be seen as a legitimate, credible, respected diversion program. I don't know if that's the best language or the best vision, but I think that's the thing that I understand best for now. Like, I don't want incarceration to be the first choice. I don't want, you know, I don't want for domestic violence to go unchallenged or unrecognized. I also would like to prevent arrests, honestly. So, you know, to that end, I would like to see BIP be so mainstream and so well accepted and understood and invested in that people can self-refer themselves before someone has to make a phone call to the police. Because we know that when people make phone calls to the police, it's not because they want their partner arrested. It's because they are terrified and whatever is happening, they want it to stop. And the only tool that they have at their disposal to be able to achieve that is to call someone else to come and help. And so if we can intervene at the at the point before um, those phone calls are made, that would be really helpful. I also think about, I mean, this is a little bit challenging, but our CLO, Meg Savage, and I have talked over the years about bullying. And I mean, can we start having conversations about the use of violence earlier in life? I mean, I know that bullying is its own specific word with its own sort of specific definition. But at the end of the day, some of the people, some of the kiddos who are using violence and are considered bullies are going to grow up to be people who are using violence as adults. And they're not going to be necessarily called bullies when they're, you know, 25, 35. At that point, they're going to be offenders. They're going to be batterers. And being able to think about the use of violence 
throughout the lifespan, I think would be really incredibly helpful. I mean, we think about um, the effects of domestic violence across the lifespan. Why not about the the use of violence and how it materializes in someone's life as something to, to use to solve problems, right? Let's say that someone does end up in the court system or in the DCBS system. I would like to see, you know, the opportunity for them to have the chance to attend a BIP program to be able to gain the benefits. The other aspect of it is to make sure that we have a really robust process by which providers are trained and they maintain their practice. Because as I mentioned earlier, the key to the program is really, really, really the awareness of domestic violence. And those BIP providers are absolutely the gatekeepers to that knowledge. And if they are able to navigate the complexities of domestic violence, I think that bodes really well for us. Are you seeing, when you mentioned DCBS again, are you seeing any referrals from DCBS? So is that a common occurrence when people are doing kind of their family care? plan or their case plan that the offender has to go to BIP or is that still kind of few and far between? You know, DCBS is one of our uh, main referral sources. So the courts are uh, court, DCBS and probation or parole are our main referral sources with a distant fourth being self-referrals. And obviously self-referrals, people who are self-referrals tend not to complete the program. And um, yeah, DCBS does send a lot of people to our, our work. The one challenge is that they do include that in some of those prevention plans. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't include it. It's just a matter of who's responsible for making sure that happens. You know, let's I mean, make sure that BIP is, you know, is this for the prevention plan for dad, the perpetrator? I mean, it's not always dad, of course, right? But is it for the person who's been using violence or is it for the family, which then puts the onus on the domestic violence survivor ultimately. So those are the kinds of like dynamics that we need to be aware of, like how someone is making those referrals. But yeah, we do see a lot of referrals from DCBS. That makes me really happy. I wasn't really sure of that. And again, I don't work a whole lot with DCBS except specific cases, right? But the system and the whole. I really don't, but I certainly hear quite a bit from family court and district court. And so I knew that that was sort of a, a, we wanted more referrals and we want more accountability around when those referrals, when when folks don't go. But that's usually where I, I hear people being sent over to the BIP program. So so as part of the series, right? So I was talked with Alex Ellswick, who was here with Voices of Hope, and he was talking about substance use and really requiring or requesting, I guess, people listening in, people doing this work around domestic violence or advocates doing family work work or just human, you know, social justice work, reframing what our thoughts are around people who have substance use disorders. And then we had Scott Lancaster, we we're talking a little bit about, you know, child abuse and 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 how we can interact with that and, and sort of our, our first steps as we're sort of checking our own bias and our own judgment around parenting and child wellness and the family unit. And then we, you know, we've had with Jay Wells was here the other day and we we're talking about incarceration. And I think it's a hard sell for advocates because as I was listening to you talk, I heard a lot of this is really good for the offender, right? Like we're trying to avoid incarceration. We don't want folks to get into that system. We we want that not to be the first response. We want alternative. We want folks to be better. Young kids that are showing signs of bullying, we're hoping that they don't kind of go there. But it really is a survivor-centered goal, right? If oh, we absolutely. can stop the violence, then it's really helping. But when you have a minimal amount of resources, and you can do this amount of work, we have a tendency to kind of skip that other part. And then, and so we're always downstream, right? You know, to kind of use a Dorothy Edwards term, we're always (laughs) downstream catching people. We're really, it might be nice to really invest up here, but but Estella, I imagine you often are kind of up against odds with domestic violence advocates to a degree on the importance of this. And we have a tendency as much as we're like, we don't want incarcerated people and all this stuff. And we don't like systems, and but we want offender accountability 
accountability and this is what happened. Lock them up and da 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 da. You know, and so I think we have to do some self work around yes. this as well. And this must be really difficult for you as sort of a bit of a champion of this field. And I think you're probably swimming upstream a little bit with some of your cohorts. <laughs> a little bit. And you know, I came to this is going to be my 20th year in this uh, work, which is amazing. And it's, I've gotten quite the education. And BIP has only been a part of my work for about, I don't know, let's say 10 years. And so I think the great thing about it is that I got a hugely solid understanding about domestic violence, about oppression, about how it actually shows up for people, that I had the incredible luxury of time of two decades to think about what can we do. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I am through and through a champion for survivors and their lives. And I keep hearing and we keep saying survivors want to continue their relationships. You know, and I think about, I mean, just putting it really personally, I think about my own life. You know, there's people that I love in my life. I want them to be healthy. I want them to be safe. I want them to have good things in life. I want them to be the best versions of themselves. And that's without domestic violence. That's, you know, my brothers, my sisters, those are my friends. And so, you know, Perpetrators of domestic violence are someone's brother, sister, friends. You know, they they do care about their families. Are they as skilled at it or healthy or safe as they could be? No, let's be honest, right? But survivors and their partners care about them and they want to have healthy, happy, safe families and survivors deserve that. So what do we do to make sure that survivors get those things that they are entitled to? What is it, as Olivia Spradlin would say, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. How do we do that? It means we invest, invest in their partners. Investing in their partners means survivors are safer and it means that their children are safer and it means their communities are safer. And so for the cost of, you know, 28 weeks or 32 weeks, I think that's a small price to pay. And, you know, survivors get to decide. And, you know, and sometimes they don't, right? Sometimes they might want to end the relationship, but they have a child and co-parenting is a requirement. And so we need to be able to make sure that they can co-parent in a safe way. Make sure that the that the person who has used violence can co-parent with their partner, with the survivor in a healthy way, that they can be a good parent to their kiddo. And most of the time, the people that come through our BIP program openly acknowledge that they want to be better parents. So, you know, there's these two people, these two adults who recognize that they want support and they want assistance. They want to be better. They want different, better things for themselves. Why can't we meet them there? So are you thinking that BIP can actually be another, you know, I don't I don't want to say menu item. Someone said that the other day on a series, <laughs> so I'm going to use sort of menu item, but we're talking about restorative justice. We're talking about harm reduction. We're talking Absolutely. about transformative justice. You're now wanting to kind of move this BIP more into that space. Maybe it was always in that space for you, right? <laughs> but, but I think for other folks, Folks that are really beginning to think about, you know, other systems, not just, you know, law enforcement response, criminal justice response, like just, but, but really how we listen to survivors, what survivors are wanting, trying to build some safeguards, trying to, you know, provide things for offenders as to being aware of their, of their humanity, Absolutely. which we don't do very well, maybe in our field. Right. And so, so moving us into that sort of space. And so you're see, sort of seeing that as part of that menu option. Absolutely. You know, it's so much easier when you think the person you're working, it's so much easier to have a bad guy. You know what to do with them. You know, you need to not root for them. You need to stay away from them. You need to figure out how to get rid of them. But these are not villain, villains. They're people. 
and um, they are someone's husband, they are someone's father. And you know the, the people that we're thinking about, they're the people we serve on a regular basis. They're the 15,000 survivors we serve. And if we believe, really truly believe that those survivors are worthy of our time, energy, resources, and investment, then their lives are worthy of our time, energy, resources, and investment. I can also see, you know, thinking about what you know you were saying about the menu of items. Um, one of the things that we've been discussing at KCADV is, you know, under trying to understand transformative um, justice and restorative justice. And I think about BIP and its capacity to maybe be able to contribute to those conversations or be in those spaces where it can serve in those roles for someone. You know, again, people don't necessarily want to have the police involved in their lives, you know, or the court systems involved in their lives. I mean, it causes a lot of difficulty and complication and risk. Immigrant families, it was a, a couple of years ago, there was a push to check immigrant um, immigration statuses when they came to, sh- uh, to court. Uh, uh, dates. I mean, that's a huge risk. But in the moment, if you have no other alternative than to call the police and there's going to be a court date, what would it look like if we had instead a BIP program that could we could rely on to help us resolve something in a much more holistic, human, kind way? Like, what would that look like instead of fear-based and punitive, instead of being punitive, being you know, an investment in the community and someone's ability to contribute to their community. I mean, that opens a lot of, a lot of different opportunities to think about. So one of the things you said though, is that it was a, it was a far fourth distance as far as people Mm self-referring, but a lot of those folks actually didn't complete the program. Mm -hmm. So it does, I think naturally, right. We have naturally tend to think consequences as negative, right. You know, I remember my mother always going, I think we should pay people to succeed in certain areas as opposed to lock people up in certain areas. You know, like she was always a reward kind of person. So knowing that, like if we had this, you know, sort of BIP transformative justice, restorative justice thing, and it was a little outside of the punitive criminal justice system, or it was an arm of it, but the goal was maybe a positive reward. And you would think it'd be positive just to have a home that's violent free and you get to see your kids, but that sometimes is not as tangible, right? Absolutely. Like you can't grab hold of it. Is there any work? Are you seeing anything right now that, that might be more of an encouragement and incentive for people to complete those programs without the dawn? Haunting. You got to spend 30 days in jail if you don't go. You know, no, not really, unfortunately. You know, I think about when you were saying, you know, I swim upstream a little bit. I think that's probably one of the areas that I most feel that way about. It's been such a forgotten program or a forgotten possibility that it's not easy to have it be that. It's got such stigma because it's typically associated with incarceration, arrest, court life that it's it's not been given the opportunity to be the positive thing it could be right the other thing to note is that it's not it's not cheap and a lot of the people who come through our doors um one of the things that they share is you know their connection to poverty i mean a class is about $20 $25 per week and multiply that times 30 weeks that's $600 and you know not a lot of people can do that it's not paid for by insurance often there's a $75 fee to enroll for an assessment so like these are significant expenses. And, you know, a lot of times when people are forced to make choices, you know, $675 could go a long way toward paying a rent payment, right? So I think being able to eliminate some of those barriers to access would be really helpful. And our CEO is really adamant about that. One of the things that we um, have advocated for, which is, it's really cool because it's so bold. And I'm like, I would never think to be so bold to demand that the cabinet give us $2 million so that we can pay for people's participation. You know, the other thing to think about is, when people self-refer, like 
I think that's a most fascinating group of people for us. Those people have decided there is something not okay in my life and I need to check it out. You know, am I completely successful at resolving it? Maybe not. But the fact that they were, they their partner has demanded this because they want to continue the relationship. So it tells me that the person who's using violence also has some sort of vested commitment to continuing the relationship. So like we have people who are willing to explore this and think about this and look at these things about themselves. Can we meet them? I mean, not just in the middle, but can we meet them where they are literally? I also think we need a little shift in thinking too that that I think supports really what you're saying is, you know, there is a tremendous amount of cost to the commonwealth of people being incarcerated. Absolutely. So if we can keep people out of incarceration and shift some of those dollars elsewhere, wouldn't that be a great thing? And I have said it on every podcast series that we've had so far, but Kentucky, according to Jay Wells, and I've asked other people, so I believe it to be a true statement, has one of the seventh highest incarceration rates in the world. So we really have something that we need need to do around incarceration rates. The other thing, and I do think there's been some work about our protective orders effective, and I think protective orders are effective with many people. Mm-hmm. I also think sometimes the idea of being in custody or being locked up might be an incentive not to do something. But I also know there's a lot of people that get 5, 10, 15 days, and that is not a change-making mm-hmm. behavior, right? So we're coming back out. And I know many women, and, I, and I'll say mm-hmm. women because that's who I've talked to, many women will go, I'm afraid to do it because they're going to be back home before I even get back from the courthouse, you know, so they're going to get post their bond or they're going to get five or 10 days served and they're going to be right back out. And so really, I don't know that, you know, if we say how successful is a BIP program, well, how successful is 10 days in jail? Absolutely. You know what I mean? It's not like we've got this great system going on over here. And we don't want to, you know, we don't want to mess with that. But let's kind of shift over here. I think we need to do some soul searching and go, what we're doing right now is not working. Absolutely. And that's where, you know, that's where our third path comes in. You know, this is where BIP like has a hopefully a role to play. You know, can you imagine what a, a shift of $2 million, I mean, for the incarceration system, a shift of $2 million is probably pe- pennies, you know, and it would make such a difference. You know, it's interesting because, you know, our domestic violence programs, you know, I'm an incredibly privileged position to be able to have access to this information, but like our domestic violence programs serve anywhere from 15,000 to 22,000 people on any given year. On any given year, according to our BIP records, which admittedly could use some work, serve anywhere on a good year from three to 5,000 people. That means like a huge number of partners did not receive services. And when I say partners, I do mean, you know, the offenders in this case. Can you imagine what kind of a shift that would create? $2 million, it's a small price to pay. You know, the other thing to think about is when we think about like those small times that people are in jail that, you know, they're not really causing significant change. It may be a slight inconvenience in someone's schedule to some degree. I think we need to look at that as an extension of the ignoring. You know, it's like, it's a small band-aid that we're placing on the problem while not really understanding the root cause of the problem. And with regard to incarceration, you know, as a parent, I'm a foster parent, but one of the things I, I was, when I was preparing to become a foster parent, I was trying to do research because, you know, that's how you learn to parent. And it's how you go. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody knows this, she's going to do some Research. Absolutely. Yes. That's that is exactly how you get this right. So I was reading and I found this like one quote. It talked about how punishment is making a person suffer for having a problem while discipline is helping them solve the problem. And when we talk about like what's happening for people to end up in jail or, you know, violations, when you were saying things like that, what it tells me is that we're expecting one specific thing to be the solution for everything. And that's not how that works. And 
I think that's what's going to be tough about BIP. BIP, in order to be more of a disciplinary force rather than a punishment force, is going to require, it requires accountability and it requires collaboration. It's like the ultimate community collaborative experience. It requires a BIP provider acknowledging that someone engaged in a, in a behavior that was abusive, making a report to the court, the court acting upon that information because it came from a BIP provider who is tasked with being able to identify it. The court making a referral to maybe a um, police department to take appropriate action. The person being aware that no matter where they go, which door they attempt to manipulate or, and when I say manipulate, I don't say it with stigma and judgment. I mean, survival skills. People, you know, don't like negative consequences and it's hard, you know, it's hard to, you know, change and it's hard to like um, struggle with the outcomes of my decisions when I'm using violence. So if I know that my BIP provider understands what I'm up to, how I'm functioning and how it's not going so well. If my judge acknowledges that and then takes uses their power to help me stay on track. If the police officers who respond then also reinforce that. What it does is it changes what causes domestic violence, which is part of um, what part of what causes domestic violence, which is that reinforcement that violence is acceptable. And it just says, no, it's not acceptable. And we're going to put you back on the right track. You know, the police says that, the judge says that, the parole officer says that, the DCBS worker says that, the BIP says that, you know, and it all might have stemmed from a survivor talking to their advocate who then talked to the BIP provider. So it literally becomes this village that can help keep people on track. I love that. I would love for the village to get larger. Absolutely. Though, right? So it, again, it isn't just, thank goodness, you know, family judge and police officer, if they're all mimicking that same, you know, message. But I'd like for that message to get even bigger and the door have lots of access, whether that's a faith community or a neighborhood community or a personal family community or whatever that may be, to get somebody in there. I think one of the things I've always been, this is dating me way back, but Sarah Buell was the big safety planner way, way back in the day, probably about the same time as Ella, you started in this work, maybe a little little bit before. and But she was also with this person who's, I'm completely blanking on his name, but he was up in Massachusetts and he was really starting the first offender treatment programs. And they were a little bit in tandem. Like, so she was rah, rah, rah. Was it David Adams? No. From Emerge no. or Lundy Bancroft? No, I don't think it was Lundy Bancroft. Okay. But they they were kind of on this like, you know, route where they were going to all the conferences, Sarah and this, this person. And so I, in the very beginning of my work, I was indoctrinated into offender treatment programs. It was very criminal justice heavy, sure. almost like a parole officer. Mm-hmm. You will do this or automatically you're going to be sentenced, right? So it was a big stick that yes. was sort of waiting there for not. But this was happening at the same time as safety planning. So, so I've always been kind of fascinated with offender treatment. It was interesting when I started joining the shelter programs, right? There was a little bit of kickback in the beginning when I was here because it was, you know, I don't know if they're effective. I don't know if they work. I don't know if they send the right message to survivors. We need to put all of our resources towards survivors. Absolutely. I often in the back of my mind would go, but putting resources with offenders can help survivors, you know, sort of down the road. But the idea of expanding it beyond just criminal justice folks, I think is, is such a critical piece of where we need to go. And I had a really great message and I got sort of stuck on the safety planning person and the offender treatment. So I don't know, it'll come to me as as, as we were talking. But I, I how, do you have any kind of idea on really how we can bring different players and different partners maybe to this work as we're beginning to think about, you know, alternatives to criminal justice response? I, one thing I think and hope for is a diversity in VIP providers because like in thinking about like restorative justice or transformative justice, I think about like, what would it look like if I, I don't know, I immigrant Latina woman, right? What if my partner and I 
needed the assistance of a BIP program, right? What would it look like if I went to my community center and said, you know, my partner and I are having trouble or we are, you know, I'm really worried about some of the things that he's doing and we need to talk about it. What would it look like if we had a BIP provider program or service at that time that could enroll my partner, maybe offer supportive services to me or like explore what's happening in my life? And it never, and it's such a normal thing or such a healthy thing, or it's part of my mental health, part of my partner's mental health, part of an investment in our family. This is something you're struggling with. Let's figure out what we can do. And such a normalized thing. I can, you know, that would be amazing. You know, I wouldn't have the fear of having to call the police. I wouldn't have the fear of having to figure out what to do about a protective order. You know, of course, these are all ideas that, you know, depend on, you know, things going perfectly well in some ways, right? But also, you know, thinking about dreaming in that way, what would that look like? You know, this is someone who understands that divorce isn't an option for me, maybe, Um, or they understand that I'm going to have to parent with this person and that I want to have my family intact. And so all of these like considerations are taken in, into account. Like, what would that look like? Like the amount of like, I don't know, the the centeredness of the family and the investment would be, I don't know, be really welcoming, I think. And it might make me more apt to have a conversation about it. I like that that sentence, centeredness of family, right? That was everything that we were somewhat talking about again in this series is the centeredness of the human being, centeredness of the person that we're trying to help, centeredness of the person who maybe has a substance use disorder or all those things, like center it back to the person we're trying to lift up. Mm-hmm. versus, you know, just kind of coming from a judgmental, you know, position of, I know it's best, we just need to punish you, da, 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 da. One of the things I think that I bump into, and I think it's a little bit where I was trying to go a second ago, is I, I do worry about messaging, right? Sure. So we, so throughout this, we've been talking a little about, about messaging, what's important, it's survivor-centered, or is the family court judges and the D- and DCBS, like, like, what is our message that families matter, that's, that domestic violence victims matter, that we understand the definition? And there is is a little, just because I'm societally built this way, (laughs) right? That there has to be, you've just done this to a loved one in your family. There is a punishment attached, you know, like, and that's why I've always liked, it's not, you know, Diane Fleet against this person. It is the Commonwealth of Kentucky saying, this is behavior that we do not tolerate. Mm -hmm. And there has to be some sort of repercussion for that. And so that's where I think I sometimes bump a little bit and I tend to get a, I'm not really a punitive person at yeah. all, but I tend to get a little punitive, but hope you do this too. Yeah. Where this sort of expands our whole conversation into maybe we could just do this first, mm-hmm. you know, like maybe this is where we can enter the, the program first and then we can do these other systems if those things don't work. You know, as you're sort of talking about like this, like not need, but like this drifting toward like punishment or punitiveness or consequence. It makes me think about uh, several years ago, I went to a um, anti-racism training. You know, keep in mind, immigrant Latina woman, I thought, what am I going to learn, right? I know everything about racism. (laughs) And the really interesting thing is the most important thing I came away from that training after two and a half days about discussing something I thought I was pretty familiar with was the harm that it causes white people. And so as a person of color, having to like, like, we see domestic violence as only causing harm to survivors of domestic violence or children, but it's always like external. We never stop to think what harm is it really causing the perpetrator? And, you know, I'm not, I'm also, I'm not someone who believes in like avoiding consequences. I'm just not, ask my kiddo. But I do want to think about, you know, what does it cost this person in terms of benefits in their lives? You know, when we're talking about like white privilege, what does white privilege cost people? It costs them an identity. It costs them a connection to community. I mean, in, in, in very simplified terms, in this training, they were talking about like, what's the, what's the white identity 
it's like apple pie and baseball. Meanwhile, you know, everyone who isn't part of the white community, you know, had all these like interesting rituals or interesting, you know, elements to their lives, food, connection. It was like really vibrant, you know, and I mean, I'm not saying that apple pie isn't great and baseball isn't great, but it's sort of like reductive. And so it reduced this group of people who were, yes, benefiting from racism in this very specific way to also almost like not full people. And so I think that's what domestic violence does for perpetrators of domestic violence. It reduces them to this like one dimensional thing we don't have to worry about, care about, or bother with. And that causes its own set of harms. And if we start think about that, then we begin to see that there's some places we can do some work. I don't even want to keep talking right now because that was just the most eloquent thing. So I kind of <laughs> I just want to close on that. Did you see the woman who spoke? Um, she was at UK recently. She did the book Zero Sum Game. No, I haven't. Oh, you would really love her. I'm, I'm so sad that I'm bringing up people's names and I don't know their names <laughs> because it would be really good. And I know Miguel sometimes says that if I say things and it, sometimes it'll link you to other stuff. And so it's making me really sad and he's looking at me he's looking at me right now because I can't remember it was really good though and she came and she was like a guest speaker at UK and and that was her piece though what is the impact of racism on the white community and it's a weird person sort of saying that as a white person like you should feel right. sorry for me about this but it was it was really brilliantly done it's not consequence free for the person who's technically or theoretically benefiting you know it's not consequence free Estella, I know we're kind of getting a little bit to the end. I don't mean to cut you off. It just was such a lovely way to end end this conversation. But is there any parting things that you want to talk about or say that we didn't get to? I can't think of anything. I just um, The only thing I ever offer toward the end of these is just to remember that if anyone ever has any questions or wants to you know, chat us up and have a conversation about it, this is one of those things that's more of a conversation than a, than a moment, right? So anybody who wants to reach out to us is always welcome to. You can reach me at 502-209-5382. Um, my cell number is 855. 5-9-6-1-8-5-4-1-2, and I welcome any and all texts. Asela, thank you so much. Anytime. You all been listening to Asela R. She is the Chief Operating Officer with KCADV. My name is Diane Fleet, and you've been listening to a KCADV podcast series. This KCADV project was supported by the Department of Health and Human Services Administration for Children and Families Award, number 2201KYSTC6, a contract with the Commonwealth of Kentucky, number PON2736-220-000-1825. And VAWA 2021, Kentucky KYDOMES 00033, awarded through the Kentucky Justice and Public Safety Cabinet. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed in this project are the views of the authors and do not reflect the views of federal, state, local, and or private funders.